71. So once you have done that, then I would ask you to think with me over the next few moments tonight about a subject that is certainly no stranger to us, but one which nonetheless permeates our mind and challenges us to even greater appreciation for the wonderful nature of the Word of God. It has been a lovely day, as was mentioned already, and now to us the privilege is again granted that we can come together and consider again the encouragement of one another and, of course, our main privilege to offer worship unto the great God of heaven. And as we do that, it is an essential part of our worship that we focus or make consideration of the Word of God, which leads us to a consideration of the lesson tonight. Perhaps by way of introduction, would you think with me about some of the following things? It's certainly fair to say that God's Word is such a penetrating element. We understand that it indeed can reach to the innermost recesses of the heart. Wasn't it Jeremiah in the long past who stated in verse 9 of chapter 20 of that book, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in mine heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. The time had come that Jeremiah was a bit discouraged. Israel was not as responsive to the word of God as he would have liked. Jeremiah, in that discouragement at first, determined he would no more speak the name of God, but then he came to his senses. And he stated, it's like a burning fire in my bones. I cannot remain silent. He determined again to speak that word. What a penetrating element. That was true of Jeremiah. Is it less true today when you and I appreciate the grand nature of how God's Word penetrates? The psalmist stated in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We realize in our better moments how that moment by moment, day by day, we need the guiding force of the Word of God. We, if we're wise, will live not a day without it. We will, in fact, turn to its pages when decisions come our way that we must make choices, for we know that God's way is always the best. But yet, not only those things, but isn't it still true? Though the Word of God be great, and though it be powerful, it nonetheless is unappreciated by many. Can't you just hear the tears fall from the cheeks of the Apostle Paul in Romans 10:16 when he said, But they've not all obeyed the gospel though he'd poured out his heart to them, though he desired that men and women everywhere would openly accept the truth, he quickly admitted that many had not. We each know today still the sadness that that brings. I've listed some other factors on there that you can well appreciate with me. What a great blessing the Word of God is to those who receive it as it was intended. To use it as a guide for life, a pathway that leads to heaven. That means by which we can come to realize God's love for us and the character of His Son and the grandness of the church. But what does that say about those who never turn to its pages, who live their life and never seek the counsel or advice of the Word of God? Are they not then to be pitied? Are they not then to be appreciated that when that great day of judgment does come, oh, how regretful then they will be that they never sought the blessed advice of the pages of God's holy word. But then what about those who are in between? They are not those who have committed themselves to a study of his word, but they turn to it, oh, perhaps in a small bit of interest every now and then. 
Most of the time it gathers dust, perhaps, but every now and then an issue arises or a thought crosses their mind, and then they will seek something to be found in God's Word. To them it may be nothing more basically than a trivial matter. You see, they too will find themselves sorely regretful, will they not? For they haven't invested the interest and the agent and the time to learn God's Word. Perhaps to say all this is to then say that a study of God's Word is not a light matter. If we expect to arrive at the grand portal of the gates of heaven, it will be by the pursuit of the things in this book. No one will arrive there by accident. No one will arrive there by happenstance. You see, we must have obeyed the truth. Didn't Peter say that it is by that means that we cleanse our souls and purify our hearts? 1 Peter 1.22 it thus is a question to be asked, how do I study the Bible? Perhaps as we talk with those who are new Christians, they might often ask, I'd like to know more about the Word of God. Can you give me some tips, some advice from your experience in the study of His Word? How can I come to know it better? We, you and I should smile greatly when we encounter someone with that kind of desire with that kind of earnest and urgent heart who has a desire to learn more about the Word of God. Perhaps tonight in our study, we will remind ourselves of some things that is good advice on how we each can be better students of God's Word and how we can encourage others to be the same. To begin that study, let me ask you to note some thoughts that might be said about various reference works in relation to the Word of God. As you and I open the pages of God's Word, we see a book that itself consists of some 66 books. We see a book that itself consists of some 1,289 chapters. We see a book that contains, if you will, some 31,102 verses. That may sound, of course, like a tremendously large number. When we approach that book, though, we understand that there are some aids and some good principles that we can use to help us appreciate, comprehend, and know what God intended us to realize. The first thing that let's discuss tonight, reference works. And there's no better reference work than the Bible itself. And thus, the first thing I've listed are multiple Bible translations. As you and I turn to the pages of the Word of God, we well appreciate that the original text was in languages that you and I are not able to read. None of us, I'm sure, here within the sound of my voice can easily read Hebrew. We can't read Aramaic. We can't read Greek. But the fact is, there are those who throughout the ages have been scholars in those areas, in, the, in those languages, and various committees of men were assembled, and those scholars took those original texts and translated them into other languages, such as English, or Spanish, or Russian, or any number of others that might well be listed. And so for you and me, who are not fluent in those original languages, we must use a translation of some kind. As we turn to these translations, might we understand that there are many, many to choose from. If you go to one of the Bible bookstores in our area, and if you go to Nashville or somewhere, you may find even more. There are literally dozens of translations of the Bible, and they are not all equal. Some of them do a better job of maintaining trueness to the original text than do others. For example, it would not be wise 
to use as a Bible for study one that was made by a single man or a single person, for he would be easily able to put into that his own personal theological persuasions and his own beliefs. And there are translations out there like that. It would be far better to use a translation that was formed by a committee of people and thus each could balance and check the other so that no easy misdoctrine or falsehood could have crept into it simply by virtue of the language. Thus, as we consider that idea, I've listed on the screen some translations that are very good ones. There is the King James translation, then the New King James translation. There is the American Standard translation of 1901. There are many who to this day still regard it as the best single true translation with regard to the original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And then there's also the English Standard Version. That was produced only now six years ago in 2001. All of those are excellent translations of the original Word of God in those original languages. Might we note, though, that sometimes a translation will state something in a way that perhaps is easier to understand than maybe another translation is. I've listed one example up on the screen. The 17th verse of Hebrews 6. As you and I read that, we observe that King James renders that text in this fashion. Wherein God, willing, to, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Though you and I can easily make sense of the character of the language that's there, almost certainly a bit of reflection would be necessary to fully gain the apprehension of that verse. But consider the rendering of that same verse in the English Standard Version, where there it simply reads, So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. To some, that may be a bit more readable. Perhaps the thought then that we can take with us, when you and I open the pages of the Word of God, it may well be wise to have a couple of translations at hand, those in whom we can have trust, and compare the readings in them. And we might be better able to quickly arrive at an understanding of what God had to say. But not only might one use multiple Bible translations, there are other Bible helps that you may find very useful as well. For example, I've also listed a Bible dictionary. We each realize that in the year 2007, in northern Middle Tennessee, the situation is rather different in comparison to what it was like in the Old Testament era, as well as in the era of 2,000 years ago in ancient Palestine. And yet the biblical scene almost uniformly takes place in that part of the world. There are customs related to living there that you and I are not easily familiar with. There are circumstances and situations that are common there that are rather uncommon here. Sometimes a Bible dictionary can be of great help to appreciate quickly customs of that land, things and words that are usually easy there but are not so easy for us here. Perhaps then some Bible dictionaries I've listed would be good to have as ready references. Smith's Bible Dictionary, as well as one by Vine or even one by Homer Halley. All of them have served for decades to be very resourceful books, things that we can turn to to gain information about the Word of God. 
In addition to Bible dictionaries, I've listed a Bible atlas. Given the geography of Palestine, and again, the scenes and settings that take place there, that is unfamiliar territory to you and me. Sometimes a dictionary, or rather a, an atlas that discusses the geography of that part of the world, the type of climate that they have, the circumstances concerning the rivers and the mountain ranges, sometimes that has an interesting role to play in our better understanding of the things stated in the Word of God. One particular dictionary, one particular atlas that is of good aid is one written by Frank. And thus, as you look for that or make use of it, there certainly are many others as well. Perhaps lastly, on that screen, I've listed a concordance. There are many Bibles that have a concordance in the back of it, but if you do a great deal of Bible study, you likely will find that that concordance is inadequate. It simply isn't big enough. A concordance is simply a work that lists words in the Bible and where they occur. And thus, for an exhaustive one, you might want to use one by Young or one by Strong. Both have, again, done an excellent job at compiling the words in the Bible, where they occur, the various Greek and Hebrew meanings of when they occur. You may find that, too, very useful in your study of the Word of God. To list all of these, though, probably there's one other that quickly comes to mind. And what might we say about the commentary? To this point, you might notice that these other works that we've quickly mentioned have not had as their intent the interpretation of the Word of God. But that cannot be said concerning commentaries. A commentary is a work written by usually a man or small group of people, and it has as its goal to explain or interpret the actual text of the Bible. And thus, here is a person or small group of men who have as their goal to tell the reader what the Bible is saying. And so here one must be careful. For if they are telling one what the Bible says, if they are mistaken clearly, then they could lead many, many people astray. For those men, of course, are not inspired. The original writers were, but these people who produce commentaries, of course, are not. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some very good commentaries to which we can turn to gain information and to read and then make our determination about whether or not they're saying that what is correct. Some commentaries that might be listed, the Gospel Advocate, of course, has one that many have used for so many years. Perhaps many of you have a set of those commentaries in your home. There's also a set by McGarvey, and there are one by Olhausen. All of them have served a useful purpose. But there's also, again, dozens of others. We might well recall the set by Albert Barnes or the set, for instance, by uh, just a few years ago, the one produced by another gentleman. As all of those are set forth, we must ever remember that, again, they are uninspired. We must use them with caution, to use them with care. But as we use them, they can, of course, provide good ideas, and they might well provide an insight on a text we would not have thought of but we must not allow them to tell us always what God says. They can be wrong. They can be in error. They could, in fact, have their own personal theological ideas in place of what God has said. In our Bible classes here at Pippin a few weeks ago, someone, I think, made note in their comments in one of the classes how that their commentary or one with which they were familiar 
was one that certainly did not state the truth on certain biblical matters. Thankfully, you and I then can use them wisely, but never in place of the actual text of God's Word. To say these things about the commentaries, perhaps one final thought before we look at some principles to help us study the Bible more effectively. We should realize that God's Word is meant to be understood. He did not give us a book with the expectation that we could not understand it. Paul expressly noted in Ephesians 3 verse 4, When ye hear, ye may understand. The Ephesians were supposed to understand. Or the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk 2 verse 2, where there God said, Write the vision, make it plain, so that those who read it may run. Habakkuk was to make it so clear and so plain and so not, under, not misunderstandable that when those who heard it would appreciate it, they would easily know how to react, how to respond, and what to do. Thus, God's words meant to be understood. May we never allow someone to convince us that it's not understandable, that it's not comprehensible. And there are those whom we each may have heard make that comment, but they were not stating that which is in accordance to the Word of God. It is meant to be understood. To say that is to say that there are some guidelines, though, that we can use to help us better understand and to make our study more effective. It begins with a text that Brother Jeff read for us a moment ago in 2 Timothy 3. There, the inspired apostle, as he wrote to his young son in the faith, simply said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that... That, he said, the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You and I perhaps have heard many a lesson, many a Bible study, and even on our own have looked at that text over and over again. All Scripture, both Old and New Testament, is given by the very breath of God. The Greek word literally means it's God-breathed. All Scripture, with that idea behind it, Thus, it is profitable. That means it is good for doctrine. When you and I want doctrine, this is where it's to be found. When we search and yearn in our soul for the things revealed by God, this and this alone is where it's found. In addition to doctrine, he said, it's profitable for that, but also for correction. When you and I find in our life, and by comparison to the Word of God, it is the mirror didn't James say that in James 1, 22 to 25? This perfect law of liberty is as though we can look into it as a mirror and it'll show us everything that's right. But it'll also point out the flaws, the sins, the mistakes of our heart and life. And then by our proper response, we can correct those things. Thus, the Word of God can serve as correction. Not only that, for rebuke and for instruction in righteousness. Thus, when we read the sacred scriptures, we are not reading a newspaper. We aren't reading a comic book. We aren't reading some other scholarly work. We are reading something literally from the mind of God. The very character and thought by inspired men who wrote down precisely and clearly what he had to say. Thus, it is that important to read it, to understand it, and to approach it with that humble and yet dignified way. When you and I read things written by a commentator, for example, as we made mention of earlier, we may question that. And we may, in fact, come to the conclusion that that man is wrong. 
But with regard to God's Word, we must always humbly and reverently respect the things He's revealed and appreciate that it is never wrong. You and I may well be, but it never is. And thus, when we approach the Scriptures that way, might you remember with me the text of Romans 2, beginning in verse 6, where there, with regard to the day of judgment, Paul had these words to say, To those who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and, and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. And thus Paul made a gigantic distinction between those who had obeyed the truth and those who had not. We then need to be knowledgeable of the truth before we can ever obey it. And that points us back to the importance of a study of the Bible so that we can not only know it, but then to bring our lives in compliance with it. After this first point, this appreciation for what the Word of God is, consider yet a second idea, a second important thing that we can utilize, and that is to study by beginning with a prayer. You see, when we open the pages of the Word of God, we should appreciate that as that study commences or begins, it is important to beseech the recognition and aid of God as we proceed in that study, that He will be with us and that we will humbly and reverently approach that Word in a correct fashion. Look at some examples in the Scriptures of where that took place. In Colossians 1 verse 9, at the opening portion of that epistle to the Colossians, Paul expressly made note to them of the goodness and grandeur of their capability of knowing and understanding the Word of God. And he said that he prayed always on their behalf toward that end. Paul had prayed that they might better understand, appreciate, and apply the teachings of the Word of God. Or perhaps the text in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 17 Read with me those set of three verses as the Apostle Paul made this a similar comment to the church in Ephesus. He said that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us for to believe, according to the working of his mighty power. And thus Paul even noted that to the Ephesians, he prayed that their eyes would be enlightened, that they would have an open appreciation and a deeper understanding of the things contained in the Word of God. Certainly since God is the ultimate author of this Word, it would do us well as we begin to also pray for his help. That as we study, we might do so correctly and properly and never read into it simply what we wish it said, but to read it literally as he gave it and to interpret it and to rightly divide it as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. Do we not remember that even in the book of Revelation, that 66th and last book in the Bible, to that group of beleaguered saints, to those that were suffering so, they were again admonished to return to this word. In Revelation 12, verse number 11, one of the keys to their overcoming victory in terms of faith was this, the testimony of the word of God. Today, if you and I then would be victorious, we too should re re understand that that victory will rely upon the word of God. 
Thus, our diligent study of it is important. And let's begin that with a prayer. Even here, as we come together in assemblies, we have prayer prior to the beginning of a Bible study time. Inasmuch as part of that, we usually ask God's aid to be with us. For Him to direct our lives and our thinking and our hearts that we may have an open mind and an open Bible, and that we may extract from that text the lessons that he would wish for us to learn. That's also important in our personal Bible studies, isn't it? But in the third place, consider also the following with me, another point that's important as we study the Word of God. We should realize that the Bible itself was revealed by God and it was done so in historical times to real people who lived at various places upon this planet. That being said, it's often a very important idea to know the history of a particular text. We noted this morning as we studied one section of the book of Hebrews how much it aided our understanding when we understood the nature of who that book was written to and the circumstances under which it was written. How beneficial is that same concept for, say, the book of 1 Corinthians? As we come to that 16-chapter book of 1 Corinthians, it's important that we know a bit about the church in Corinth, the circumstances in which it survived, the difficulties that they faced, and, of course, the powerful message revealed to them by the God of heaven through Paul and how that would have addressed their problems and aided them to be more correct in the sight of God. You see, as we come to a text a particular book or a chapter, often it's very helpful to know a bit about the circumstances, the context in which that was written. You may have heard that old slogan that we can never take a text out of its context, but rather if we do so, that makes it become a pretext. We then should study in context. And in fact, we'll have more to say about that in our lesson next Lord's Day evening as we look at part two of this How to Study the Bible. But for now, let us notice some examples in the scriptures of where this very idea is important. Jesus, the blessed Son of God, as he began his personal ministry upon this earth, we remember in Luke the fourth chapter, he returned to his hometown city of Nazareth. And when he did so, he gathered there at the synagogue hour, and at the time of worship, a scroll was handed to him, and he had the privilege that day of reading from the book of Isaiah. As he read what you and I would call Isaiah 61, verses 1, 2, and 3, he closed the scroll and said, This day is this text fulfilled in your ears. In the very aftermath of that, they became so furious and so angry at him that they, in fact, proceeded to put him or tried to put him to death. We may immediately ask, What was it that Jesus said that so angered them? Why were they in Nazareth so upset at what Jesus read that day? When we look at Isaiah 61, and we return to the scene of Luke chapter 4, and we appreciate the setting of that text, it all becomes crystal clear. When Jesus read from Isaiah 61, he read a text verbatim that was a prophecy about himself in the, in the New Testament era, the coming Messiah. And thus, when he read that text and applied it to himself, those Jews were beside themselves with anger. They considered him directly guilty of blasphemy and were thus ready to put him to death under the old law of Moses. But of course our Savior was the Messiah. 
He taught them the truth that day, and the city of Nazareth perhaps was not the same shortly thereafter. The Savior had come their way. He had taught them the fact that indeed the Christ had come. Another example might well be the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. There is Jesus spoke about that pressing subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. He opened up that discussion and they were amazed at his preaching that day. However, historically that had been a problem for the Jews for centuries and thus that explains partly why they asked the question in the first place. The Jewish traditions and the Jewish schools of theology had wrestled with that subject, but our Savior simply pointed out the truth, how it had been from the very beginning. For did he not say, have ye never read? You see, Jesus taught that truth yet on another occasion. And in context, we can easily see the forcefulness of what he taught that day. But yet to put texts in their context, and again, we'll have more to say about that in our lesson a week from tonight, perhaps also leads us to a fourth point. And this one is easily one that sometimes is not easily seen as much as it could be, perhaps, to realize the modern application of the Scriptures. Isn't it always a tempting problem to read the Bible, but perhaps to see in it events and individuals and characters and circumstances that happened 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago or even 4,000 years ago? but maybe to not see how that applies to my life or your life today. And therein lies the difficulty. Satan would always enjoy for us to read, but to never apply. But you see, the Scriptures are ever modern, aren't they? Oh, it's true that they were written from our vantage point a long time ago, or were committed to pen a long time ago. But they are ever alive. Wasn't it the Hebrew writer who said, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. As you notice the opening segment of that verse, he said, The word of God is quick. What does that mean? We know what it means to talk about an animal that's quick. It means it can move about in a very rapid and easily, almost immediate fashion. But what does it mean to say that a book is quick? Maybe the American Standard Translation does us a great aid when it says the Word of God is living and it's active. This book is a living document in a sense. It's ever modern. Every age needs its application. It's not as though it was only good for those living in the first century. We need its teachings just as much as they that's what it means to say it's living and it's active. Paul addressed the same point again in 2 Corinthians 3, when there he said it's not a dead letter. It's not a dead letter. You and I, maybe in school, are encouraged to read Shakespeare, or we may be encouraged to read Homer, or one of those older types of literary documents. Perhaps their, our teacher may encourage us to see the value in that, but this much is still true. Those are dead documents, but this one is not. It is ever needed. It is ever active. It addresses every problem the human family will ever face. And not only does it address it, it has the solution. It doesn't matter how technological our age may become. It doesn't matter what things may be possible that were not then. It will have the principles contained within it 
that can address every circumstance in every situation, no matter what they might be. In fact, if God allows this world to stand with the way that its technology seems to be advancing, a few thousand years from now, if you and I were still able to see it, this world, no doubt, will look nothing like what it does now. But one thing we can be assured of, it will still need this book. It will need it, every word of it. For only then will it have the answers it needs, the direction that's provided, and the counsel that is, in fact, necessary to be pleasing and right in the sight of God. That's what this living document is all about, isn't it? And so when we study the Word, it's good for us often to ask, what does that text say to me today? What does it mean to me now? It's true that in it we can see what it may have meant to the first century saints, but what about to me today? Is God here challenging me to change something about my life and to bring my life in greater harmony with His will? That's the character and thrust of this living document day by day. To see these four things that we've listed already, let us then look at the fifth one and last one we'll consider this evening. It has to do with how we interpret this book. We noted earlier that it does have a large number of chapters, and as you and I interpret it, we must ever make certain to remember this premise. Nowhere can truth ever contradict itself. For if it does, it can't be truth. If it ever contradicted itself, one part would have to be right, perhaps, but the other would be guaranteed to be wrong. If something's true, no part of it can be wrong. And thus, simple logic leads us to see this book can never contradict itself anywhere. That has an important interpretation concept, doesn't it? That means that any time we come to a text and we interpret it in a way that contradicts another text, we can rest assured that our interpretation of one or both of those texts is incorrect. For again, truth can never contradict itself. The psalmist stated it this way in Psalm 119, verse 160. He said, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Thy word is true from the beginning. The American Standard renders that verse, the sum of thy word is true. That word sum, S-U-M, means to add up. That means when we take each part, rightly divide it, and add it all up, we've got the truth. And nowhere can it contradict itself. Notice earlier in that same chapter, in fact, in verse number 128 of that same 119th Psalm, we read, another great principle and powerful thrust that relates directly to this one. For there he said, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts to be true. God's precepts, every one of them. That means there can be no disharmony, there can be no contradiction, no discrepancy, no error. And thus, when we come to the Word of God, that maybe is one of the deepest and most profound of all the interpretation principles. We can never interpret a text in a way that contradicts another one. That means we have to study God's Word, all of it, to know what He has stated on any given point and on any given principle. You and I, when we utilize these five principles of Bible study, when we use them with a degree of dedication and devotion, we, as we apply them, will become better students of God's Word. We will come to a better understanding of it and we'll have a more effective appreciation of the things that it contains. Notice as we have looked at these five points tonight, 
Perhaps it would be fair to summarize somewhat briefly with these thoughts. Bible study is very important. We each would appreciate just from the verses we've looked at tonight how that a study of God's Word could be summed up in the words of Jesus when notice He said in Matthew 4, verse number 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You see, Jesus said man needs to live by this. And notice in John 6, verse 63, He echoed that sentiment by saying, The words that I have spoken, they are spirit, and they are life. You and I will never have eternal life apart from these words. We'll never have, in fact, the best life upon this earth apart from these words. And thus, the importance of Bible study is also seen when we daily involve ourselves in a consideration of it. But notice we've learned tonight how that various Bible helps can be useful. Dictionaries, atlases, concordances, perhaps commentaries, and multiple Bible translations. And then we've learned five principles of effective Bible study. How that, in fact, as we utilize these, we can appreciate that the Scriptures do not contradict. We can also notice the powerful nature of beginning a study with a prayer. How that in these we should find applications for our day and our time. And how upon looking at these we can furthermore see that this is inspired. Never should it be equated to a work of man. And with all of that, to notice how that upon application and proper understanding and context, we will have a deeper understanding of the Word of God. This evening, one of the things we do readily see is that there is a plan of salvation. We certainly must never make too little of that. For Jesus stated that you and I must believe upon Him or else we will die in our sins. No wonder to the Romans, Paul stated in Romans 10 verses 12 to 14, the important necessity of belief. Did he not say that how shall they obey except they believe? We also notice that we must repent of our sins, for they are what sent our Savior to the Calvary's cross. Upon that repentance, we happily confess His sweet name as our Savior and then are gladly immersed, baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins. All that's taught in the New Testament so plainly and so clearly. But once we have become a Christian, have been added to the Lord's body by Him, Acts 2.47, we then are in a position to where we have the privilege of walking with Him day by day throughout life, using His Word as the guide. When we stumble, when we fall, He's always there for us to come back to. If you have erred in a public way and others know about your faithlessness, the character that you've brought reproach upon the church, come back to your first love. Brethren here are more than excited to welcome you back home, but more importantly, Jesus is excited about the same. If we could be of any assistance to you tonight in a public way in your obedience to the gospel, hesitate no longer, for indeed it is true. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse number 2. You and I are not promised tonight. We aren't promised tomorrow. We aren't promised Wednesday, next Sunday. If the Lord is banging upon the door of your heart tonight, will you not open that door? Will you not let Him in? Will you not, in fact, welcome the Savior in? If it's the desire of your life to do that right now, will you not let that be known? While together we stand and while we sing.